1 Corinthians chapter number 10 tonight, 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, and I'm going to do something that I don't normally do uh, in my preaching. I, I'm going to preach on what we might call a topical message. I don't do a lot of topical preaching, and uh, the uh, mainly because uh, a lot of times it can be, uh, you know, abused, and the context always gives you guidelines and guardrails in preaching the Word of God. But uh, I want us to pick up on a phrase that is used five times in the New Testament, and I want us just to think about it tonight. I don't know, maybe I'm just wanting to encourage you a little bit and uh, and exhort you a little bit. and uh, Hopefully the Lord will use it in your heart as he's used it in mine. First Corinthians chapter number 10, I'd like to read verses 12 and 13, and then we'll go to the Lord in a word of prayer. The Bible says, Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for the word of God tonight. Lord, be with those that uh, are, are suffering, those that have physical infirmity. Lord, there's so many that are on our hearts tonight. Be with the spiritual needs that have been mentioned as well. And Lord, I pray that most and, and, and foremost that tonight you use the word of God in our hearts and our minds. Deal with us according to thy will, Lord, where we're at and what we need. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to take note of the phrase that's used in verse number 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And then the Apostle Paul says this, but God is faithful. God is faithful. Five times in the New Testament, you're going to find a variation of this phrase in which the faithfulness of God is is plainly and boldly and unequivocally stated. Uh, And, you know, it's an interesting thing that the word of God should state that when you think about the faithfulness of God, there's a few statements we could make about it, which maybe would suggest to us that were the Holy Ghost not trying to emphasize this truth to us then the inclusion of it would be what we could almost say was superfluous. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, does anybody really need to be told God is faithful? Uh, Don't we already know that God is faithful? Well, let me tell you this. You may not need to hear it today, but there will come a day you're going to need to be reminded that God is faithful. And the Holy Ghost, knowing the infirmity of man and the feebleness of believers, he reminds us and on no less than five occasions, even though we could say, well, it doesn't need to be said. But hey, sometimes it does need to be said that God is faithful. We could make a few just passing statements about the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is integral and imperative to the very character of God. He would not be God if he was not faithful. The Bible teaches us that our God is immutable. That means he is unchangeable. Uh, There are two times once in the and well, I would say this, there's many times, but two prominent times, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, where the immutability of God is stated boldly in the Old Testament. The prophet said, I am the Lord God. I change not in the New Testament. It said this way, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday today and forever. For us to believe that God is fickle instead of faithful is for us really to deny the character of God. It is to suggest that He is something less than what God must be for God to be God. I remember reading a commentator one time talking about the ancient, uh, you know, uh, the, the Greek gods and Roman gods, which of course are fantasies of men's imagination. They're not real. Uh, they're what we call gods with a little g. 
And he made the statement this commentator did that these gods, it was as though you took a line and took it from all of the most depraved and despicable characteristics of mankind and then took and drew a line from there out into the expanse of eternity, ever increasing the scope of, of who those uh, gods are. In other words, you had a god of lust and that god was the the hyperbole, the emphasis of the idea of lust. You had a god of war and it was the emphasis, almost like if you took and exploded out this concept of anger or of lust or of greed or of whatever it might be. Then he turned around and said, now here's what God actually did. Instead of taking fallen human conditions and amplifying and expanding those and, and blowing those up to the size of the universe, he took a god who measures the universe in the span of his hand and compressed all of that deity down into human flesh and walked amongst us so that he might express to us who God is. In him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily. And so when we think about who God is and we think about God's faithfulness, uh, certainly to suggest that God would be anything less than faithful is to make him a God like some of these plastic pagan gods that are the invention of art and man's device. If we're going to believe that he's the God that he says he is, then we must believe that he is faithful. Not only that, but the faithfulness of God is paramount to our faith in Him. Why can we trust God? Because God's never broken a promise. Uh, The very bedrock and cornerstone of Bible Christianity is faith in Jesus Christ. But how can we have faith in a God who is not faithful? If He's not faithful, He must be faithless. And if He's faithless, then we cannot put our trust in Him. It's irrational to believe that there could be the God of the Bible and that He's who He says He is, but He's not a faithful God. It, it just it, it it boggles the mind. It breaks the psyche. It's an impossibility. But then I would say this: that the faithfulness of God is what provides for and predicates our faithfulness to Him. We can only be faithful to Him because He is faithful to us. Why are we able at times? And by the way, it takes faith to be faithful. The word faith and faithful are not synonymous in the word of God. They have different connotations and certainly they're informed by the context. But I would say it's not a stretch to say that a man cannot be faithful without faith. Being faithful to the Lord means to serve him when it does not look easy to serve him, when it does not look beneficial to serve him, when it's not rational to serve him. But we're setting all of those things aside and saying, I choose to trust God even above the things with I, uh, that I see with my own eyeballs. I'll trust Him even above the things that I hear other men say. I'll trust Him even above what my own flesh and my own intuition is telling me. At times when I must choose, I'm going to choose to put my faith in Him, and that will produce a faithful life. But how could we be faithful if we didn't know that He likewise was faithful? How could we trust Him if, he, if we didn't know that He was trustworthy? And I, I say all that to say this, you know, you, you might have thought when we read our text, when we emphasize that, okay, preacher, God's faithful. I already knew that. Learn that in Sunday school. Why do we need to talk about it again? And I'll tell you exactly why. Because if we really believed he was faithful, we'd be a lot more faithful to him. Uh, you can uh, measure not his faithfulness, but you can measure our belief in his faithfulness, proportionally speaking, our level of faithfulness to him. The more that we are convinced that he is faithful, the more that will prompt and, 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 and push us to be faithful in our own lives. 
And so when it comes down to that moment when a decision must be made, are we willing to say, I believe God keeps his word. I believe the things he said are true. I believe that all that he's promised me uh, is, is still true and it's ironclad and, and all the forces of hell cannot shake it and all of the questions in my mind cannot shake it, that he is faithful no matter what. Can I say this? If he's not always faithful, he's not at all faithful. If there's even a moment that he's not faithful, then he's not faithful at all. You say, well, now, preacher, is that true of us? Do we not all have lapses when we're not faithful to the Lord? That's absolutely true. But can I tell you this? We are very mutable. I don't mean I can mute you. I've already tried that. Amen. But we are changeable. But if God is immutable, as he says that he is, and as obviously a God that is rational should be and would be, then if he had even a moment of unfaithfulness, what it would really suggest is he's not faithful at all. Now we have to confirm this in our hearts and minds. If we're going to live for the Lord, we have to really believe this. And I wonder how often that our failures of faith are rooted in a failure of faith in God's faithfulness. If we really believe that he is who he said he was, and if we really believe that his word will outstand time, if we really believe that he's never broken a promise, I wonder how that would change the way that we, the way that we behave. And so when we look at this phrase, God is faithful, we find it five times in the New Testament. And the Holy Ghost gives emphasis on these five occasions because these are five occasions in which you and I need to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. Let's look at them together. The first one is found in our text tonight. And I would describe it this way, that God is faithful in the hour of temptation. Now, let me remind you that the word temptation in the Bible has two different connotations. And the context will always dictate which definition is to be used. Sometimes the word temptation can mean a trial, a difficult time that comes into your life in which God is testing you. And then sometimes the word temptation can mean the solicitation to do evil. If you want to see a good comparison of those two, you can read through James chapter 1. James uses that word in both ways, and he explains the usage of both of them. But in our text here tonight in 1 Corinthians 10, the word temptation is being used in the context of the solicitation to do evil. You say, preacher, how do we know that that's true? Well, because the Bible says this, he'll not suffer us to be tempted above that you're able. Now, Paul will go on later to say in 2 Corinthians chapter number one, that when they were in a trial of great temptation, that God put more on them than what they could bear. And your Bible always agrees with your Bible. And so it must be that the temptation that's being spoken of here is not just a trial or a testing, because indeed God will put more on you than you can bear. You say, well, preacher, why would God do such a thing? Well, here's why Paul said it. This ain't my message, but, you know, you got time. So listen to this. So, so the, <laughs> what God says about it, what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter number one is he said that God put more on them uh, than they could bear so that they would find in themselves the sentence of death. In other words, they said to themselves, if we keep going leaning on ourselves, man, it's going to kill us. And uh, then he went on to say this, that he did that, that we might place our faith, that we might put our faith in God who raiseth the dead. In other words, God will put more on you than you can bear to show you that it's more than you can bear and to get you to come to him so he can bear your burdens instead of you trying to bear them yourself. But that's temptation in the sense of trials and afflictions. In our text here, we're talking about the solicitation to do evil. What does Paul, why is the reason that Paul says that God is faithful? What reason is there for that? What does he want us to draw from it? Well, the reality is we're all going to face temptation. Paul says that in verse 13. No temptation hath taken you, but such as is common to man. Everybody is tempted. That happens to you. It happens to me. The Bible says in the book of James that every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. And that's true for you. That's true 
true for me. So what do we need to know about God and His faithfulness in the hour of temptation? Well, I would say it this way. Number one, we need to know that God is faithful to always prevent us an excuse to sin. Notice what he says, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able. You know what that means? God will never put you in a situation where your only choice is to sin. There will always be the choice to do right. Now, if you're not confirmed in your belief that God is a faithful God that keeps his promises, here's what your flesh is going to tell you. Your flesh is going to say, well, it's sad that you're in this situation, but you've got no choice but to do wrong. You've been backed into a corner here and you've got to do the wrong thing. There's just no way around it. You have no other choices. And then it'll say this. And God was the one that let you be in this situation. No, my Bible tells me this, that God will never put me in a situation where my only option is to sin. I always have the choice to do the right thing. So I have to be reminded in that moment of temptation that I can sin. That's true. But if I sin, it's not because I had to sin. It's because I chose to sin. God will never allow me to be tempted above that ye are able. Ye are able to what? Well, to by His grace and with His help resist or flee from, to walk away from, to not participate in. There will never be a moment where there's a temptation that's too powerful for you and you just can't help it. And, you know, old Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. There'll never be a moment like that for you. You will always have the choice to do right. But now, why did God do this? Did He do this to condemn us? No. The Bible tells us here he did not do this to condemn us, but to deliver us. He says this, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, in that moment of temptation, I have two choices. I can say, well, here I am. I didn't want to be here, but I can't help it. It's too much temptation for me. I just, I guess I'm just going to have to sin. I could say that, but I'd be lying to myself. Or I could say God's faithful. And because God's faithful, he would not allow me to be in this situation without giving me the strength to overcome this temptation. So I can make the choice to overcome it. But here's what I need to do. I need to start looking around for that escape hatch. I need to start looking for how I can get out of this circumstance. The preacher said something on one night of revival that stuck with me. Hey, sometimes a better run, a good run is better than a, than a great stand. Sometimes, and in fact, that's what Paul goes on to say. He goes on to say, wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Uh, when he talks about wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. He's not talking about folks going through tough times and thinking that they can stand up by the grace of God. What he's saying is people that think they can stand up to temptation. Hey, there's times you don't need to stand up. You need to get out. You need to run from it, man. You need to flee from it. It is the epitome of arrogance and pride to somehow believe that you're made of different stuff than everybody else. Everybody else got into sin because they're not as spiritual as you. No, the reality is the reason they got into sin is because they did exactly what you're doing. They hung around it until it got its hooks in. So Paul's telling them that they need to escape. And there's times, hey, listen, uh, the, there's times we say, well, preacher, I want to fight temptation. Why not flee from it? Uh, do you really think so lightly of sin that you think it's worth gambling your testimony and harming the heart of God by playing around and trying to prove something? Why not just flee from temptation? That's the biblical perspective. It's not that he made a way to stand. He tells them to take heed when they think they're standing, they're about to fall. He doesn't say, hey, be sure you stand up. He says, when you get a chance, you better escape. You better run from it. So we know that God will always provide us an escape. Now, sometimes that escape will cost us something. Like Joseph of old, it cost him his coat. Uh, sometimes it might cost you a job. It might cost you a friend. 
Uh, it, it might cost you a, a group of friends or a social environment. It, it might cost you some money. It might cost you, uh, you know, some ridicule. It might cost you something, but how valuable is pleasing the Lord to you? And how destructive do you know sin to be? Uh, it cost Joseph something to escape, uh, but he made the better deal. He would have been far worse off if he had kept his coat and lost his testimony. He lost his coat, but he kept his testimony. What did he do? He escaped. So in that moment, I can trust that God is faithful. And if I'm in this situation, I don't have to sin. God will allow me to escape from this situation. If I don't believe that God's faithful in that, my flesh will deceive me into yielding to sin. But if I believe that God's faithful, and I know that He never lies, then I can always look around for that escape route. So I would say in the hour of temptation. Now turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. So the first one we've noticed was in our text, 1 Corinthians 10, that in the hour of temptation, God's faithful. He's faithful to prevent an excuse on our part and to provide an escape on our part, to give us an opportunity uh, to get out of that situation. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 3, and uh, have y'all heard any preaching on 1 Thessalonians lately? Second uh, Thessalonians, you know, uh, in Second Thessalonians chapter three, Paul is asking the church at Thessalonica to pray for them. Uh, the church at Thessalonica is experiencing persecution. Paul likewise is experiencing persecution and he is praying for them in their persecution. They're praying for him. And he says this in verse one. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For all men have not faith, but the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. So I would say this, in the hour of temptation, he's faithful. But he's also faithful in the hour of trouble, in the hour of trials, in the hours when uh, living like a Christian is not easy, when we're feeling the external pressure that the world seeks to place upon us. Paul is speaking to people and he himself is in a situation where he's being reviled by the world around him. He's being persecuted. Uh, he is being locked up. They are running the risk of being locked up themselves. And he's writing to calm the nerves of this uh, New Testament church. And how does he do that? Does he do that by saying, hey, don't worry about it. You can whoop them. It's not what he says. Does he do that by saying, here's what y'all do. Y'all just roll over and give them what they want. And they'll go away. No, that's not what he does. He tells them to pray for him. He's praying for them and to not lose faith in the Lord. Trust the Lord. Why? Because he is faithful. What's he faithful to do in those moments? Well, I would say this. Number one, he is faithful to grow us through our trouble. He says this, the Lord is faithful who shall establish you. I thought about this group of believers, and I'm going to say something similar to this in, here in a moment, so I don't want to bear down on it too hard. We'll get there in due course. But he's talking to a group of people, and you sort of imagine they're trembling in fear of the problems that they're facing. They feel weak. They, they feel anemic. They feel unable to face the things that are in front of them. And no doubt they're starting to look at one another and wonder. Uh, at this time in uh, the church history, uh, it was not an uncommon thing for Roman soldiers to barge into a place where the people of God were meeting and haul people away and arrest them. No doubt suspicions were starting to work their way into their mind and they're looking around wondering who's going to be the person to give them up. And there's a lot of nervousness, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. And, and Paul reminds them, hey, listen, the Lord has the ability to establish and establish us in the midst of these troubles. He can make us more firm in our resolve, more deeply rooted in our convictions, more bold and strong in our testimony. We don't have to feel like it's going to wear us down because he has the ability to build us up. I can have confidence in the Lord that God is not hindered by my problems. 
God is not hindered by the things that hinder me. And in fact, God knew about those things before I ever knew about them. And He has the ability in those situations to grow me and to deepen my faith. I have tried, and I've been an abject failure at it, but I've made a deliberate effort in my life when problems arise to stop and look and say, now what is God trying to do in this? What's He trying to teach me? What's He trying to develop in me? Because I promise you this, you and I may do things sometimes for no reason, but God's never did anything for no reason. So we can have confidence that He can grow us through our trouble. Sometimes when problems arise, we begin to feel as though it's somehow a setback, a wash in our growth as a Christian. We say, well, that's time wasted. I wanted to be doing this, and now I'm not. I'm doing this, and I must be sort of just taking steps backwards. I'm, I'm starting to sink or treading water. And, and, and But, you know, God always has the ability, even when we're not pushing towards our goal, for Him to be pushing towards His goal in our life of growing us and making us more like Jesus Christ. So he can grow us through our trouble. But then he says this, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Evil is another one of those words that has two meanings. Sometimes in the Bible, the term evil has to do with moral uncleanness or wickedness. Sometimes the word evil in the Bible has to do with unpleasantness, with problems, with trouble, with destruction in our life. You remember when Job said uh, that, uh, you know, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord and not evil? He was not saying that God has caused people to sin against us, nor was he saying God has caused us to sin. What he was saying is God has brought some things that are not pleasant into our life. They're not good into our life. They're evil. They're unpleasant. They're not things we would desire. They're things that bother us and disturb us. And Paul's using the word evil in that way here. When he says keep you from evil, he's talking about keeping you from harm. Now listen, I'm not going to tell you that you'll never suffer harm in your life. I'm not going to tell you that you'll never suffer problems in your life. But I am going to tell you this, if God didn't want you to experience them, He has the ability to keep you from experiencing them. There's nothing ever enters the sphere of your life if you're serving the Lord and living for Him, but what God placed it there for your good and for His glory. So He is faithful to guard us through our trouble. He can keep us from those things if He desires. Now remember, the man that pinned this down died a martyr's death. I'm not telling you you're not going to have problems, but I'm telling you those problems aren't going to surprise God. God has a purpose for it. God has a reason for it. So in the hour of trouble, what do we need to know? When things go sideways, we don't know what to do, everything's fell apart, what do we need to be reminded? Well, we need to be reminded that God's faithful. He's faithful to grow us through our trouble. He's not He's not sitting up in heaven trying to rearrange his, his calendar book and figure out what to do now. He knows what He's doing. He knew what He was doing before that happened. He knows during and He'll know afterwards. And He can grow us through our trouble. Not only that, He's faithful to guard us. He can keep those things from our life. And so what should we do when they happen? We should take them as at the hand of God. We should say, now, Lord, you put this in my life, and I'm going to trust you have a reason for it. Turn over to Hebrews chapter number 10 with me. So in the hour of temptation, God's faithful. Now, we know He's faithful all the time, but there's going to be times that in the days of sunshine, you may not think that much about the faithfulness of God. I'll be honest with you, there may be days it would always be good for you to think about the faithfulness of God, but you may have days so good you don't need to on those days, if you take my meaning. But I tell you this, in the hour of temptation, you're going to need to know that God's faithful. In the hour of trouble, you're, you're going to need to know that God's faithful. Then notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse number 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. I like that, man. It's not, it's, it's not an old dead way. It's a new, it's a living way. 
There's no death in that way. It's a living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is and some more is. And there's some more that that's their manner too. Is that? Oh, that wasn't, sorry, that wasn't the Bible, that was me. But exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. I'd say it this way, in the hour of trembling, we need to be reminded that God's faithful. Now remember what the context is, the book of Hebrews. He is writing, and I've often described it this way, he is writing to first century Jews who are at the door of salvation. Now, the reason I say it that way, and people have had a lot of trouble understanding the book of Hebrews before when they've read it. They've said things like this. Well, preacher, is he writing to Jews that haven't been saved yet? Yes, he is. Preacher, I thought he was writing to Jews that had just got saved. Yes. Preacher, I thought he was writing to Jews that had been saved but never grown in the Lord. They'd never moved beyond those things as the foundation of faith. Preacher, which one is it? Yes. Paul never took for granted a man's spiritual state. Uh, He always allowed that person to determine that in his own conscience with the Lord. So Paul would say things like, well, we don't think this of you, or we think better of you, or we expect this out of you. Because Paul would say, I don't know whether you're saved or not. I know if you believed on the Lord. I know if you if you believed in in the gospel that I preach and trust in the Lord, then I know that you're saved, and, and you can know that you're saved. But he would say, that's between you and the Lord to know that. And so he's writing to first century Jews. And unlikely or likely there are times in the book of Hebrews that he does have in mind Jews that are standing at the door. They've not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they can still hear, hear the prayers of the temple behind them. They can still hear the bleeding of the sacrificial animals behind them. And that's pulling at their heart. And They don't know what to do. They know if they believe in Christ, their family's going to reckon them dead. They're going to buy a casket. They're going to bury it. And they're going to be dead to them. They know that they're going to be anathema in their community. They're going to be despised and reviled and hated and ostracized and unpersoned. And here they stand with the truth of Calvary in front of them, with the terror of rejection behind them. And he's encouraging them to go on and to trust the Lord. Then there's other times that he's writing the book of Hebrews and he's got in mind these people that have just made that decision. They trusted in the Lord. And now here they are facing the loss of all these things. And he's encouraging them not to try to go back to that old dead system that there's nothing in it anymore, but to go on unto new things, greater things in Jesus Christ. Go on forward. Don't try to lay again the foundation of those things, but go on forward. And then he's writing to Jews that had believed on the Lord, but were stunted in their spiritual development. They had never grown to see the truths that Paul disclosed in the uh, books of Galatians and Romans and Ephesians and Hebrews and through the rest of the Word of God of what Christ has done in our heart and in our life. And so he's writing to these people who are standing on the cusp of a life-changing decision, or we might say direction, but they're fearful. They don't know what it's going to mean. They're scared of what all they're going to lose if they make this decision. And so he's telling them, listen, we, we've we got a, a, a way into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We've got a new and living way of worshiping through the veil, that is to say his flesh. We have a high priest over the house of God. He says, we've got all these things. We've got a faithful God. So don't be unfaithful to him. He's saying, I know you're trembling. I know you're fearful. But in that moment, you need to be reminded that though you may be fearful, he is faithful and you can trust him. 
Why does that matter? Well, notice verse 22. He says this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. This is no second guessing, no wondering. Trust the Lord in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. That's one of the only times you're going to find usage that phrase sprinkled in the New Testament. But he's writing to Jews. And these Jews know about the ceremony of the red heifer in the Old Testament and the ceremonial water mixed with the ashes of the red heifer and how the Jew was to be ceremonially cleansed after they'd been unclean so that they could go forward and offer sacrifices. They had to be purged by that water from the red heifer. He's saying, you know, God's done the same thing with our conscience. We have all this guilt in our minds. We've got all this regret in our mind. But he just takes the precious blood of Jesus and he sprinkles that on our conscience and reminds us that those things have been done away with in Christ. And he cleanses us of that evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, he ain't talking about baptism. He's talking about the word of God. He's saying just as in the Old Testament, they then would have to take that water and wash their bodies and cleanse their bodies. That God has done that with the precious word of God. In other words, he's saying this, draw near, draw near. And, you know, we need to be reminded, listen, in those moments of trembling, that he is faithful to hold us close to him. We don't need to be fearful of coming to him for the help and strength that we need. Say, preacher, I feel weary. I feel weak. I I feel fragile. Go to the Lord. Uh, Let him draw you into his presence. Let him encourage you. Let him comfort you. Let him bolster your faith. Know that God is aware. Listen, if, if, if you think that you're weak, knowing you the way you know you, imagine what God thinks knowing you the way he knows you. You think he don't know your feebleness? You think he doesn't know that your frame is but dust? You're not going to surprise God by letting him know how weak and feeble you are. He already knows. Go ahead and just go to him. Say, Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, I know what to do, but I I fear I don't have the courage to do it. Lord, I'm struggling. You know what you'll find? He'll draw you close to him and he'll give you the strength that you need. And then he says this, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. I can tell you exactly what was going through the mind of some of these first century Jews. They were saying to themselves, I believe in Christ. But I'm so fearful to say that out loud because what happens if the pressure gets to be too much and I turn back to my old way of living? What happens if I just can't bear up? And listen, there's sinners that still have that fear today when they come to Christ. I've, I've had them say it to me before. Well, preacher, what happens if I if I ask the Lord to save me, but then I don't live for him? Can I tell you what will happen? You may not be faithful to him, but he'll still be faithful to you. You know what? He's faithful to hold us up. Not only to hold us close, but to hold us up. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without way. Don't be afraid to go ahead and step out for Jesus Christ. You know why? Because when you step out, he'll step up. He'll give you the strength that you need. He'll help you because he is faithful that promise. So in the hour of trembling and then sort of connected to that is over in First Thessalonians chapter five. Uh, take a look at it with me. First Thessalonians chapter five. Look down at verse number 23. Now, I'm going to start reading. You can catch up with me. He says this, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. Now, before we before we read any further, he's just got through going down a laundry list and telling them all these things that they need to do. The preacher last week preached a little bit about it. But he's going to go through and he's going to give them a laundry list. He's going to say in uh, verse number 15, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and all men. Rejoice evermore. Pray without ceasing. And everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesying. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain all appearance of evil. Now, somebody might read that and say, now, preacher, that all sounds good, and I want to do all of that, but I'm not sure I can. 
I'll try to, preacher, but I'm just not sure that I can. Well, can I tell you this? Hey, listen, in the hour of trying, and what I mean by that is not not a trial, but I mean in the hour when you're trying to serve God. You know what you need to be reminded of? He says, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Church of God, they're, they're hoping to hold out, aren't they? Just got to hold out. Just got to hold out. I ain't trusting to hold out. I'm trusting that he's holding on. He's holding on to me. You know why? Because faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. When you're trying to serve God and you're scared of failure, and I don't know anybody that's ever legitimately tried to serve God that ain't been scared of failure. Because a man ain't going to try to serve God without wanting to please God. And if a man wants to please God, he's going to be fearful that he's going to fail. You know what you need to be reminded of? You need to be reminded that he is faithful. Be reminded that he has enlisted us. He says, faithful is he that calleth you. He's the one. And I'll tell you this, we ought to want to serve God, serve God, but nobody wants us to serve God more than God wants us to serve God. I want you to serve the Lord. I want it with all my heart. I hope you want to serve the Lord with all your heart. But I'll tell you this, none of us has more of a vested interest in us serving God than the one that has called us. He has enlisted us. So you know what he's going to do? He will empower us. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. You know, this thing has never been about you doing it. It's always been about you getting out of the way and letting the Lord do it. Now, that's what Bible Christianity is. And I think that is one of the one of the fundamental truths that sadly is ignored in most pulpits today. There's a lot of preaching about bearing up and holding on and hanging in and settling in and, and buckling down and, and a lot of stuff that all roots in the ability and resolve and strength of man. But I'll tell you what you need to do. You need to surrender. You need to give your heart to the Lord. You need to admit you can't do it yourself. And if you do that in sincerity, here's what you're going to do. Every day when you wake up, you're going to say, now, Lord, I know I can't do this. So I'm going to stay close to you today. I know I can't do it. You remember when you got a job and they had to train you on the job? And they probably did it. Now they do everything with computers. But probably probably at one time, if you got any, any, any gray hairs living anywhere, then you probably, when you got trained on a job, they give somebody and they said, now, listen, you just stay right beside me. You don't know what you're doing, but I do. So you just stay right beside me all day today. And if there's any problems, I'll help you. I'll take care of you. You know, if we really believe we can't do it, you know what we're going to do? We're going to stay beside the one that does know how to do it. Uh, he will empower us. He's the one that does it. You say, preacher, there, there's times I don't know what to do. Well, that's okay. There's never a time he don't know what to do. Preacher, there's times I'm not able. Well, there's never a time he's not able. So stay close to him in the hour of trying. And then turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with me. And we'll look at one final one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The book 1 Corinthians is one of the most fascinating books in the entire New Testament. It is written to a church that is in upheaval. Uh, there's been a man in the church that has allowed sin in his life. And it's a sin that is so dark, so disturbing, that Paul says it's not even named amongst Gentiles. And then beyond all that, the church is squabbling, fighting with each other because they have allowed a sort of partisan compartmentalism to take place in the body of Christ. And there's some that are saying, well, I'm of Apollo. And then some saying, well, I'm of Paul. And some saying, well, I'm of Cephas. And you know, Paul even says this. There's some saying, I'm of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but it seems to me like if somebody said, I'm of Jesus, I'd just hush. I wouldn't have nothing to say to that. I mean, I wouldn't say, well, Jesus is all right, but I'm of Paul. But things have grown so toxic that everybody was walking around talking about their little group they were a part of. And so Paul writes to the church at Corinth and 
He says something interesting. Verse number four, he says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God, which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you're enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that ye come behind in no gift waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, listen to this. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. I'll let you in your own time go on study about them fussing and arguing and all the contentions. But it's interesting what Paul says here. He writes to this church. He doesn't jump in with both feet, just setting a fire to them and, 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 and ripping them to the, to the core. Instead, he reminds them that God saved them, that God's done a work in their, in their life, that people are watching them, that God has empowered them, that God has gifted them, that God has a desire that they live blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says this, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And he's talking to a group of people that are having a real problem with fellowship. They're not getting along. This uh, little New Testament church, one of their major problems is that ain't nobody on the same page. He goes on to tell them that his desire is that they speak the same thing, that they deal with these contentions, that they bury them in grace. But before he ever gets there, he says, don't ever forget the God that called you into this fellowship, the God that is expecting you to get along, the God that has yoked together this group of believers, that God is a faithful God. You ever had a relationship that just soured? I've had that happen. People that, and sometimes it's of something that someone did. Sometimes it's of misunderstanding. Sometimes it was just, what's that term they use? Irreconcilable differences. Just something happened and all of a sudden dispositions changed and and there's been times, I've said this to people before, there, there's been times with people and they've got out of church that it was months before they ever left, but I knew the moment they got out. Something changed. They let something bitter them instead of bettering them. They let something sour them instead of making them more spiritual. And I could tell when things changed in their disposition. And when that happens, all of us have a choice. In that moment, we can look and we can say, well, I guess that's over and done with. I guess that's that relationship blown. Well, I guess there's no way through this. We can say, you know, God knew what he's doing when he put us together. And if he knew that, then maybe we ought to give time for God to work in our hearts and in our lives. We'll say it this way. In the hour of tension, it's important to remember that God's faithful. Now, I'm not telling you there's never a reason for people to leave a church. I'm not telling you there'll never be a reason for you, for you to leave. I don't know. I don't know the will and mind of God. But I will say this, that uh, in the fellowship of believers in a local body, if you're going to really go to church, you're going to bump into people. Now, if you're just going to come and sit and go home and nothing else, then you might you might be able to pull the wool over your eyes long enough to believe that you go to church with perfect people. But if you're going to really go to church, you're going to bump into people from time to time. And when that moment comes, you have a decision. Am I going to cut bait and run? Am I going to let this thing sour my spirit and attitude? 
Am I going to let this thing defeat me? Or am I going to stop and say, you know, I believed it was the will of God for me to be here the day that I joined. By the way, let me say this. Far as I know, ain't nobody on the edge. I ain't trying to. I ain't, If they was, they sure enough wouldn't be here on a Wednesday night. Somebody say amen to that. I ain't trying to lock anybody in. This is where the, the text of the word of God took us tonight. So I'm going to trust the Lord has a reason for it. And as such, I just want to remind you in that moment, we can either look at it and say, well, you know, I guess that's it. I'm just going to head for the door. We can look at it and say, you know, I believed it was the will of God the day that I joined. And why do I believe that has changed now? Is it just because there was some tension? Is it because somebody hurt my feelings? Is it because something happened? Somebody did something that I felt overlooked or I felt neglected or unappreciated? What is my reason for the decision I'm making? Paul's looking at a group of people that, hey, listen, this was a church split waiting to happen. All right. Waiting to happen. This was a group of believers. I mean, hey, one of these guys was Apollos. You know, Apollos was a guy, his claim to fame was he was the best preacher around. He was he was a hurricane of personality. He was a brilliant individual. This thing going on at Corinth was a church split waiting to happen. And as such, man, it would have been very easy for this crowd that says, I'm of Cephas, to say, well, let's just go find Cephas and have church there. And this crowd that says, well, I'm of Apollos, to say, well, let's just go find Apollos, and we'll go start the second Baptist church at Corinth. But instead, he says, listen, you know what you ought to do? You ought to stop and pause a minute and ask yourself this. Is God or isn't God faithful? The one that called us into this fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, is he faithful or has he changed or have I changed? What's happened in my heart and my spirit? I've pastored for too long to believe there's never any reason. I'm talking about God sanctioned, heaven given reason for people to move and go to a different church. I've seen it happen. Listen, there's been, I can't tell you the times that I have prayed people into these pews and prayed people out of these pews over the years. There's times it's the will of God to come. There's times it's the will of God to go. And I realize all that. Like I said, far as I know, nobody's headed for the door. If that's true, let me just clue you in. I ain't been reading your mail and I don't have a crystal ball. This just happened to be where the text we was looking at took us tonight. But I would say this, if you find yourself in that position, The faithfulness of God dictates that you ought to stop, pray about it, and ask yourself, what's my reason here? What's God doing here? And can I trust that God's faithful? Remember what we read a moment ago, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. The whole purpose behind that is say, if God put me here, if he if He got me to it, he'll get me through it. Well, if God God planted you there, he'll grow you there, even during the difficult times. Let's go to Lord in a word of prayer tonight. The altar's open. If you need to just come, maybe you just want to thank the Lord for his faithfulness. Man, I've got a lot to thank the Lord for his faithfulness in my life over. And maybe you just want to take a moment and just rehearse to the Lord some of his faithfulness in your life and thank him for what he's done. Or maybe there's something, one of these areas, you're finding yourself in the hour of temptation or of trouble or of trembling or of trying or of tension. And you just need to remind your heart and spirit that God's faithful. Why don't you come down and talk to the Lord about it? The altar's open. I invite you to come and deal with the Lord tonight.